Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. There was once an elderly couple who noticed they were getting a lot more forgetful, so they decided to go to the doctor's office. The doctor told them that they should start writing things down so that they would not forget. They went home, and the old lady asked her husband to get her a bowl of ice cream. Remember what their doctor told her, she said, you might want to write it down. Indignant, the husband replied, no, I think I can remember that you want a bowl of ice cream. She then told her husband she wanted a bowl of ice cream with some whipped cream on it. Write it down, she told him. But again, he said, no, no, I can remember you want a bowl of ice cream with some whipped cream. And the lady said, okay, one last thing. I like a bowl of ice cream with some whipped cream. And can you put a cherry on top? Please write it down, she told her husband. But again, he said, good grief, woman, I'm not an idiot. I can remember that. To prove it, he recited back to her. You want a bowl of ice cream with whipped cream and a cherry on top. Husband goes to the kitchen to get the ice cream. He spends more than 30 minutes in the kitchen. He comes out to his wife and hands her a plate of eggs and bacon. The wife stares at the plate for a moment, shakes her head in dismay and says, I knew I couldn't trust your memory. You forgot the toast. (laughs) I'm sure many of us can identify with both of them. There are some things, however, in life that we need to remember. This morning, Jesus is going to tell his disciples that although they are frightened and confused at that moment, There will come a day when they're going to look back and remember what he told them. It's all going to make perfect sense. Look at verse 16 with me. A little while and you no longer are going to see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he is telling us? A little while and you're not going to see me. And again, a little while and you will see me. And because I'm going to the Father. So they were saying, what is this that he says a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to question him, and he said to them, Are you deliberating together about this, that I said a little while, you're not going to see me, and again, a little while, and you will see me? Jesus now proceeds to deal with certain difficulties felt by his disciples. Now, this is not meant to mean that they understood those words immediately or that the disciples even had their problem solved at that point. Quite honestly, in most ways, they were just as puzzled as before. But important truths were spoken. Answers were given, and in due course, the full implication of Jesus' words would be understood. Now, it's not surprising that these words proved difficult to the disciples in that upper room, because they have puzzled Christians ever since. The main problem concerns the meaning of the coming again of which Jesus speaks. Does he mean that he will come again in the person and work of the Holy Spirit? Or is he referring to the post-resurrection appearances? Or even to his ascension into heaven? Now personally, I think the language goes better with a reference to his death and then to the post-resurrection appearances than to anything else. Although this is not to deny that there may be a secondary kind of meaning. Just know this, solid and well-read Christians can disagree over things like that. 
as they are secondary issues that don't affect at all the main tenets of the Christian faith. But the words had to be certainly mysterious to these men who stood on the other side of that cross. It's not surprising that the disciples were puzzled. Some of them even expressed their bewilderment. The heart of their difficulty was a reference to the phrase also, a little while. And so they concentrate and they zero in on that. And quite frankly, they see no solution. All of Jesus' words must have seemed contradictory in their minds. The 19th century Swiss commentator Frederick Louis Godet aptly summarizes the disciples' perplexity. He writes, Where for us all of this is clear, for them all was mysterious. If Jesus wishes to found the messianic kingdom, why go away? If he does not wish it, why return? This apparent deliberate obscurity suggests three different levels of interpretation. Let's look at all three. First, it can refer to Jesus' death in the days of his entombment, during which time he was not seen, and then the resurrection, which follows renewed sights of him. Second, it can indicate the periods before and after Pentecost for us. Now, because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, we see him in a spiritual way that was not available previously. And finally, it may describe the church age, this short time in which we do not see Christ with our physical eyes, but when the Lord returns in glory, we will see him face to face and have earth's sorrows transformed into joy. But what struck me here is the disciples are discussing things about Jesus while he is in the room with them. Think about that. They were talking about him when they should have been talking to him. I wonder how often that is true of you and me as well. What's going on, we say? What does this mean, or why did that happen? We often talk to one another first without directly taking our problems to the Lord. And by the way, many times this can lead to gossiping, if it is a, rela a relational issue with someone else. Of course, we don't, we don't call it gossiping. We are way too spiritual for that. We call it sharing in the guise of a prayer request. But I'm always amazed at how ready I am to talk, or let's be honest, to complain to another person when it is the Lord alone who knows the solution. But I love verse 19. The Lord took the initiative and moved to comfort the disciples by answering their unasked questions. His action is reminiscent of God's word through the prophet Isaiah where it says, It will also come to pass that before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. It's good to know that God speaks through our inner needs and even in our ignorance sometimes. Verse 20, please. Truly, truly, I say to you that you will weep and mourn, but the world will rejoice. You will grieve, but your grief will be turned into joy. I love how one theologian summarized this. He writes, few, if any of us, can fully appreciate the misery the disciples experienced in that last night with Jesus. When they saw their master framed against the rising sun, 
pathetically agonizing through the last hours, apparently helpless and impotent. The disciples had been up all night, and they had not had any nourishment since the Last Supper. Then came a dizzying whirl of events, the exit from the upper room, the descent from the dark wall of Jerusalem, the ascent up the slope of Olivet, the vigil at Gethsemane, with the master repeatedly casting himself down in prayer. Then Peter's denial and curses. He finishes by saying, And soon after that would come the growling, ravenous mob and the butchery of our Lord at Golgotha. That was a misery that cannot be fully described. But sometimes I think that we can fall prey to reading the Bible and forgetting that this, these were real people with real feelings. So as we make our way through this section, try to imagine yourself in the place of not only the disciples, but in the place of the Lord Jesus also. So I find it telling that first off, Jesus doesn't gloss over the fact that his disciples were experiencing gut-wrenching sorrow. I've never understood those who teach the Christian life is devoid of sorrow and suffering. I just don't see how you can read the Bible and come to that conclusion. That's why false teachers pull out of context certain verses and sadly, their congregations don't know enough of the entire scripture to be able to see through that. So how do you come to, to the conclusion that Christianity is all roses and rainbows? Especially since the object of Christianity is a man who is described by the prophet Isaiah in these terms. He was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows, well acquainted with grief. So why is it? When something bad happens in my life, do I often think, why me? Lord, thank you. I do devotions. I go to church. I try not to slug people when they make me angry. So why did this happen to me? Well, that's a tough question, but the answer is actually pretty simple, though not easy to accept. The Apostle Peter would later write these words, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing were happening to you. But to the degree that you share in the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing, so that the, also the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. Well, that makes sense, right? If Jesus, who is the object of our faith, who, as Hebrews says, was perfected only through suffering, then it logically follows that we who walk that same straight and narrow path will sometimes also have to enter into that fellowship of suffering. Jesus said, you will sorrow while the world is going to rejoice over my death. But Christ's enemy's joy over his death is going to be a short-lived one. The Jewish leaders had mockingly promised to believe in Jesus if he would just come down from the cross. But when he did the greater miracle of being rose from the dead, they still refused to believe. 
Instead, they hastily concocted a scheme to cover up his resurrection, going so far as to bribing the soldiers to spread the lie that Jesus' body had been stolen while they were sleeping. But what I want us to get this morning is that Jesus did not replace their sorrow. Instead, he transformed it. And that is exactly what the Lord prophesied that last night in the upper room. Jesus predicted his disciples would undergo intense sorrow while the world would celebrate a perceived victory. Now, clearly, this is in reference to his imminent death and burial. However, his ordeal illustrates a great principle for all those living between the time of the Lord's ascension and his return at the end of days. During this interval, during this great in-between time that we call the church age or the age of grace, Christians are going from time to time to experience sorrow. Loved ones will die. Spouses and children will leave or go back to the world. Bodies contract diseases. Innocent people will suffer persecution. But perhaps the most difficult thing is, meanwhile, it seems as if malicious and despicable people prosper and evil appears to enjoy the spoils of victory. What this text is teaching us is that when we go through pain, the Lord does not take away that which caused the pain and replace it with something else to, to bring joy. It's not substitution. It's transformation. As he produces within us the joy by the very thing that once caused us the pain. For instance, Joseph was thrown into a pit by his envious older brothers. But picked up by some passing merchants in a caravan, he ended up in Egypt. He was then sold as a slave to the house of Potiphar. And he worked his way up into Potiphar's household until suddenly things turned sour when Potiphar's wife falsely accused him of sexual misconduct. Cast into prison then, Joseph languished there day after month after year until God miraculously worked through a series of incredible events to release him from prison and elevate him to the position of prime minister of Egypt. Thus, the very things that had caused the pain, such as the rejection of his brothers, the pit and the prison, those very things were eventually transformed not only to work out for his own good, but to save his entire family during the times of famine. The scriptures indicate that Jesus himself experienced that same type of transformation. His deepest sorrow became his source of greatest joy. Isaiah 53 once again reminds us that he was despised and rejected by men a man of sorrows, and well acquainted with grief. But Hebrews 12, 2 describes him as one who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. What does that tell us? The miracle of the cross transformed sorrow into joy for Jesus and for his disciples, and it can work that exact self-same miracle in each of us this morning. This is now going to give us a great example of this. Verse 21, please. 
Whenever a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish because of the joy that a child has been born into the world. Therefore, you too will have grief now, but I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and no one is going to take that joy from you. Jesus here replies to the need rather than to the question of his disciples. What do I mean? He points out that there can be anguish that is purposeful, like that of a woman undergoing labor pains. It must be gone through, but what is done at the end, the person forgets about it because of the joy that is the result. So they, in the same way, must go through a time of deep sorrow, but out of it is going to emerge an abounding kind of joy. Jesus now gives them a principle that they can hold on to. The principle is simply this. The object of your pain presently will produce great joy eventually. Here the thought is the contrast between the state of mind of the mother before and after the birth. During labor, she is in great distress. But when the child is born, the distress is all forgotten. Now let me start by saying that as a male of the species, I almost feel unworthy to even speak of the pains of going through labor. I just don't know what that's like. The closest thing I can imagine is what Carol Burnett said when trying to explain that pain to someone else. She said, all you have to do is grab your bottom lip with both hands and pull it over the top of your head. No thank you. So it's a good thing I had not been Eve because after delivering that first baby, that would have been it. The human race would have had just one generation. And yet, some of you ladies still manage to spit kids out like a Pez candy dispenser. <laughs> I don't know what to say to you other than hats off. That's the one thing you'll remember. Anyway, back to the sermon. To the mother experiencing birth pains, every minute may seem, seem as an hour as our concept of time changes with our feelings. For instance, 30 minutes in the dentist chair may feel like hours, while hours fishing or dining with friends may seem like a very short time. But make no mistake about it. Jesus does not mean that after a woman gives birth that she can't remember any of the pain of childbirth. Rather, he is saying that the joy of the new child thrusts that pain into the background. Yes, there's pain and struggle, perspiration and anguish. But yet it's the very object that produced that pain that provides the joy when the baby is finally born. In other words, Jesus is saying, my leaving, my being crucified, my death is going to cause you great joy one day, especially when you see me again in heaven. When you finally understand it was necessary for me to go to Calvary in order that your sins could be completely forgiven. We've experienced that. We've come to know Christ as well. Our mourning over the sins of our old life was turned into the joy of a new life. For the true believer, the sorrows of life are pregnant 
with potential joy. And the disciples are going to experience that joy when Jesus is resurrected, proving forever that he was who he said he was, the only son of God. Think about that. Can the joy even be described when three days after Jesus' death, the disciples learned he was once again alive? Matthew's description of the resurrection ecstasy of Mary and Martha gives us only a hint when he writes, So the women hurried away, afraid and yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. That little phrase has always captivated me. Afraid and yet filled with joy. How can that be? I can understand the women being afraid, and I can understand them being filled with joy. But both at the same time, how does that happen? It took me a long time to come to terms with that, but I think that I finally understand it. In all the moments of life, I'm relieved that I can experience both fear and joy at the same time. Much like the example of childbirth, there is a mishmash of simultaneous thoughts in my life, such as, I can't possibly do this thing as the pain is not unbearable, but at the same time, the mother is thinking, but I really cannot wait to see this new baby, to just one more push, and there will be joy in the morning. Isn't that how it often is with the sorrows of life? There will, be, there will be joy in the morning. I don't mean joy in the morning, M-O-R-N-I-N-G. I mean joy in the morning, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. That similar mixture of fear and joy is the juxtaposition in the mind and heart of every believer in here. What I mean is we're not ignorant. We can see the proliferation of evil and brokenness and the depraved things that mark our world. And all this can be very unsettling and disturbing. We certainly are not out of touch with our feelings or reality. Yet we know God's promises in his word that these things must happen and actually even greatly increase as the end approaches. And so there is a strange contrast whereby at the same time, while fear and doubt are trying to capture my heart, the Holy Spirit has given me these pulsing reminders of joy. Well, in what ways? How about joy as my security as a child of God? Or joy in my hope of finding my faith in Christ? Joy in the understanding of God's great love for us? And joy in the permanence of God's kingdom and his righteousness in our life? So it's okay to sometimes to be afraid and yet still be full of joy. Now, the thought is not, of course, that believers will never know sorrow. It is rather that after they have come to understand the significance of the cross, they will be possessed by not happiness, but by a deep-seated joy, a joy that is independent of this world. Or as the black ladies of my old church used to say, the world did not give it, and the world cannot take it away. And he also promises that this will be a joy that no one can take from you. The Greek word translated here as great joy is the word mega, as in megaton. Can any of us really even imagine what it was like when the sisters charged into the disciples' presence, bursting with mega joy? 
There must have been a lot of shouting and embracing and weeping and retellings of the story over and over again. The disciples had been cast into the depths of despair, but in just a few hours, we see them taken to the very pinnacles of joy. Look at verse 23 with me. And on that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name, asking you will receive so that your joy may be made full. Have you ever felt like that God doesn't listen or understand your prayers? Let's just be honest this morning. Maybe you even felt a bit like Big Ed. Big Ed goes to the revival and listens to the preacher. And after a while, the preacher asks anyone who needs prayer to come forward. Big Ed gets in line, and when it's his turn, the preacher says, Big Ed, what do you want me to pray about? Big Ed says, Preacher, I need you to pray for my hearing. So the preacher puts one finger in Big Ed's ear and the other on top of his head, and he shouts and he cries and he prays for a very long time. After a few minutes, he removes his hand and says, Big Ed, how's your hearing now? Big Ed says, I don't know, preacher. It's not until next Wednesday at the county courthouse. (laughs) Now, if we were honest, we've all felt a little bit like Big Ed. We take a petition to God, but sometimes he doesn't seem to understand our need. But not only does the Lord understand what we perceive our need to be, he only does what is in our best interest every single time. Now, unfortunately, some have misinterpreted this to mean that by tagging Jesus' name at the end of their prayer, they can ask for whatever they want, and they are assured of getting it. It's often used as an excuse to pursue material wealth, as in, oh, Lord, I want a cherry red Ferrari, and please make sure it has those lambskin seats. And, oh, Lord, well, I've got your attention. How about a summer home in France? Nothing too extravagant. Four bedrooms will be plenty. And, by the way, Lord, it says right here, my father will give me whatever I ask in your name. So, Lord, give it to me now, check and checkmate. Amen and amen. Is that what this means? No, and not even close. Notice that that this abounding joy is connected with prayer. They are to pray in order that their joy may be made complete, and it cannot be made complete in any other way. Now, Oswald Chambers interprets praying in Christ's name as asking anything according to his nature. That simply means we are to ask Christ for the things that he would want and not just our own kind of spontaneous desires. So, back to my illustration. Would Jesus drive a cherry red Ferrari? I have to doubt it. I think he would probably just drive a good, dependable car. Actually, as soon as I type that preparing the sermon, I realize... (laughs) He probably wouldn't have to drive anything as he can appear and disappear at will and walk through walls. But if he didn't do that, I think he'd drive a Subaru like me. Anyway, prayer is not a means by which we get God to do what we want. Rather, it's a means by which God does what he wants through us. 
Again, Chambers says, the idea of prayer is not in order to get answers from God. Prayer is perfect and complete oneness with God. So this happens when we are filled with the Holy Spirit. Our hearts are so in tune with the Lord that we pray for and desire the kind of things that he wants for us. What does Romans 8.26 say? The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot even express. And he who searches the hearts and the minds of the Spirit, for the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Also, this is important. Praying in Jesus' name means coming on the braces of his merit and not ours. Christ's full name is the Lord Jesus Christ. This means Jehovah, the Savior, God's anointed. That is the only name of whose merit we depend upon for access to God. We cannot think in any way that God will hear us because of our virtue. Praying in the name of Jesus means praying on the basis of his merit and not on the basis of any merit of our own. Now, the illustration of drawing money out of a bank is a perfect illustration because it involves a person's name. For instance, if I go to a bank with a check that I have signed and attempt to draw the stipulated amount of money from the bank, I am at that point asking in my own name. And if I have an account sufficiently large enough to cover the amount requested, the check will be cashed. But if I do not have an account or if I have insufficient funds, it will not be cashed. However, if on the other hand, I go to the bank with another person's name signed to their check, and if he, he has great resources on deposit, then it don't even matter if I even have an account or not. The check is honored because of his name and his deposits. So in closing, what have we learned today? Like those disciples, I know every believer in here wishes we had the physical presence of Jesus with us. And one glorious day we will. But until that day, we are promised that if we abide in him, he can take all the trials, troubles, and tears of this life and turn those very things into something joyful. He alone is the one who works all things together for our good, even when we cannot see it. And the Bible says that God is not a man that he can lie. But how do we appropriate that? It is only done through prayer in his name, trusting him to always do what is best for us. I'm going to close with a quote. If we knew what God knows, we would ask exactly for what he gives. Let us pray. Father, we do live in a world of sorrow and pain. There are people sorrowing here this morning. I've seen tears in people's eyes already. This is a hard place to live in. Lord, that's why you had to come. You are our only hope. And Lord, you somehow were able to look down upon this wretched world and love us enough to come and sacrifice yourself so that even when we are going through times of difficulty, there is something within us, a joy that we cannot even explain. As your, as your word says, it makes no sense to us the kind of peace that we have. We should be a wreck. But instead, somehow your Holy Spirit comes upon us, and we know that in the end, it's all going to be okay. But until that time, Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us for the days ahead. 
Let us be witnesses, Lord, to those who don't know this hope, who are trying in their own strength to make life work make sense. We ask for your blessing upon the food we're about to have, Lord, in this time of fellowship with the Saunders. And we just pray, Father, that we would enjoy one another's company, because I think this is kind of like a foretaste of what heaven is like. And we ask these things in your name. Amen.